birthday time, and we have two birthdays we're celebrating on this March 19th, 2024. David Carlson of Otho up in uh, Webster County, I believe, and Joanne Maudlin from uh, Perry in Dallas County. So very happy birthday both to David and Joanne on this March 19th. You are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. If you're hearing us on your television on Iowa PBS and you're not a registered IRIS user, please give us a call at 515-243-6833 so we can get you on our list. We need to know who is listening in order to keep our services free. Now here is Deanna with today's obituaries. Thank you, Pat. Theodore E. Erickson of Panora age 86, son of Eric and Dorothy Moreland Erickson, was born April 21, 1937, in Des Moines. He passed away Saturday, March 16th, at Lakeside Village in Panora. Ted graduated from Des Moines-Lincoln High School in 1955, where he played baseball, basketball, and football. He married his high school sweetheart, Elaine, and three children were born to this union. They later divorced. Ted worked as a barber for over 30 years on the south side of Des Moines. He also was a high school basketball and football official for over 20 years. On August 15, 1970, he married Janet Lee Dorset uh, in Des Moines. They made their home in Des Moines before moving to Lake Panorama in 1973. Ted served six years on the Lake Panorama Association Board, where he was a past vice president. He served on the Guthrie County Hospital Board, Lake Panorama Water Board, was a Lake Panorama Chairman, and volunteered at Timber Creek Charities in rural Guthrie Center. In July of 1999, Ted started working for Brokers International as a corporate driver for many years. Ted enjoyed traveling, golfing, and was an avid Hawkeye fan. He is survived by his children, Ted, married to Cindy Erickson, Kim, married to Lynn Clayton, and Kathy, married to Mike Woods. Olive Des Moines. Stepsons Bill, married to Denise Dorset, and Brian, married to Beth Dorset, both of Penora. Along with many grandchildren, great grandchildren, step grandchildren, and step great grandchildren. He was preceded in death by his parents, his wife Janet, and sister Jean Porner. Per his wishes, cremation will take place and no services will be held. Burial of his cremains will be in the Brethren Cemetery in Penora. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be left to Timber Creek Charities, Panora EMS, or the Panora Fire Department. The family would like to thank the staff at Lakeside Village and the nurses with Unity Point Hospice for the wonderful care they provided to Ted. Twig Funeral Home, Panora, is entrusted with his services. George Clive Cook of Marion, Iowa has died. With sadness and joyful hearts, we wave goodbye to George. His journey on this earth concluded peacefully on early Friday morning, February 23rd, at the Views of Marion. A celebration of life will be held at 1.30 p.m. on Sunday, March 24th, at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Services in Marion. Born on August 11, 1928, in Ord, Nebraska, to George and Charlotte Bushman Cook, he attended high school in Alden, Iowa. The call to Christian ministry led him to attend Westmar College in Lamars and Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. On July 31, 1953, he married the love of his life, Mavis Arlene Cook, 
and they were married for 68 years until her passing in 2021. Clive served as a pastor to Evangelical United Brethren and United Methodist Churches of Sewell, Meservy, Alexander, Springville, Prairie Chapel, and Kimball Avenue. After retirement, he served as a part-time chaplain at Western Home Retirement Community in Cedar Falls, Iowa. Clive enjoyed spending time with family, reading daily devotions, bicycling, viewing sports, playing games with family and friends, and eating ice cream. Clive is survived by his brother, Harold Cook, four children, Sandy, married to Terry Sill, Marilyn, married to Mark Kincaid, Keith Cook, and Joyce Cook, grandchildren, Cassidy Reingen, Kevin Sill, Craig Kincaid, Carrie Kincaid, Hannah Kincaid, uh, Brennan Cook, Colin Cook, and Ethan Cook. The family extends heartfelt gratitude to the caregivers at The Views and the Mercy Hospice staff for their compassionate care and support during Clive's final days. In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions may be made to the Cedar Valley Nature Trail, Mercy Hospice, or your chosen charity. Jackie Cooper, known as the Taylor House in Des Moines, surrounded by family and friends. Funeral services for Jack will be held at 10 a.m. on Thursday, March 21st at the Carlisle United Methodist Church. A visitation will be from 6 to 8 p.m. on Wednesday, March 20th, also at the church. Interment will follow services in the Carlisle City Cemetery. Jack is survived by his wife, Charlene, of 58 years, sons, Randy, married to Becky, Mark, Corey, and Chad, 11 grandchildren, four great-grandchildren, and a host of family and friends. And finally, Richard Rick Cox of Des Moines, age 70, beloved son, brother, and uncle, passed away peacefully on March 13th. Rick was born in Des Moines on September 17, 1953, to Dick and Helen Rose O'Brien Cox. He was one of five siblings and a lifelong Des Moines resident. He graduated from Dowling High School and enlisted in the Army shortly after graduating. He spent most of his working life at Meredith Corporation in the mailroom and delivery services. Anyone who worked at Meredith during his time there knew Rick as he was a good guy who was always friendly, dependable, and steadfast. Rick was employed by mail services and was a Des Moines Register paper carrier for several years at the time of his death. He saved every greeting card from his customers at the holidays and truly appreciated every tip every year in those cards. He loved spending time with his family and especially loved his nieces and nephews. He looked forward to family gatherings and playing the card games, Queens, that he would always win by passing on bad cards, and, those, and thus jokingly no one would ever want to sit next to him. He had a great sense of humor and looked forward to watching Bill Maher and other late-night talk shows. He was an avid, avid Hawkeye fan and liked to attend Des Moines Buccaneers games. He was much loved and will be greatly missed. Rick was preceded in death by his parents and his brother Dan, and is survived by his sisters Jan Henter, Julie Verdon, and Deanna Ingebrigtsen, nine nieces and nephews and their children and several cousins. A private family service is planned. We wish to thank anyone who was kind to Rick in his life and ask that you keep showing kindness and understanding to others in his memory. Pat. Thank you, Dan, and we'll read now the final article in the main section of Des Moines Register. Justice's way if officials went too far. First Amendment case involves New York and the NRA. Mark Jansen of USA Today wrote this article. 
The National Rifle Association battled New York state regulators at the Supreme Court Monday over their reaction to mass shootings, which threatened to choke off insurance and lending to the gun advocacy group. The case isn't about the Second Amendment right to bear arms. It's about the First Amendment right to free speech. A majority of the Supreme Court sounded ready during oral arguments to stick with the current standard for how much government officials can say about businesses they regulate, but left uncertain how that would resolve the New York case. The NRA contends New York regulators went too far in pressuring insurance companies and banks to stop doing business with the group because of its gun advocacy. Under Supreme Court precedent, government officials may use their bully pulpit to persuade people or groups to take action but not coerce them. They are seeking to penalize the NRA because of its speech advocating for gun rights, said David Cole of the American Civil Liberties Union Foundation, who argued for the rifle group. But the New York Department of Financial Services insists the NRA and three insurance companies admitted to peddling unlawful policies. Criticism of the association by the department's superintendent, Maria Vullo, and Governor Andrew Cuomo coincided with the enforcement action rather than dictated it, according to government lawyers. A half-dozen current and former prosecutors warned the NRA's position could weaken enforcement and overwhelm the courts with lawsuits. For example, many of the more than 1,000 people charged in the January 6th Capitol riot asked to dismiss their charges on First Amendment grounds. If the Supreme Court rules for the NRA, those defendants could start suing prosecutors. The case concerns two sets of actions, one targeting a specific insurance policy, one addressing banks and insurers more broadly. In April 2017, the NRA, which is headquartered in New York, began marketing carry guard insurance policies to cover expenses from using a legal firearm in self-defense. Some critics called them murder insurance. Carry guard policies were administered by Lockton and underwritten by insurers Chubb and Lloyds of London. New York's powerful Department of Financial Services began investigating in October 2017. The department can grant or deny licenses, launch investigations, impose millions of dollars in fines, and refer matters for criminal prosecution. Chubb and Lockton suspended the carry guard program the next month. In February 2018, after the Parkland shooting, criticism rained down on the NRA, including from Cuomo and Volo. Volo began meeting with insurance executives who did business with the association. What was said is disputed, but Lloyds of London decided to stop underwriting firearm-related policies that month and to scale back its business with the NRA. In April 2018, Volo sent guidance letters to New York banks and insurers in the wake of several recent horrific shootings. She said the social backlash against the NRA and other gun rights group is demanding change now. The letter went on to say, The department encourages regulated institutions to review any relationships they have with the NRA are similar gun promotion organizations, and to take prompt actions to managing these risks and promote public health and safety. Volo's letter, Cole told justices, put a scarlet letter on the NRA. The Department of Financial Services determined the NRA's insurance products, including CarryGuard, 
were unlawfully marketed because the group lacked the necessary license. In May 2018, Lockton and Chubb admitted to unlawfully providing insurance in New York and agreed to pay a collective $8.3 million. In December 2018, Lloyds acknowledged violating state law and agreed to pay a $5 million fine. The NRA agreed to pay a $2.5 million fine and to refrain from offering insurance in New York for five years. They were doing massively illegal things, Neil Cacciol, a lawyer representing the New York regulators, said of the NRA and three insurance companies. Cacciol said, we think it was an exercise of legitimate law enforcement. He agreed that government officials can't coerce action. But he argued that if the high court allows lawsuits to challenge enforcement from organizations that have already admitted breaking the law, it will open the door to widespread lawsuits claiming retaliation from regulators. Justice Contenji Brown-Jackson seemed to echo that concern, telling the NRA lawyer, What I'm worried about is your position ultimately reducing to any time a regulator enforces the law against an entity that does business with an advocacy organization that will have a First Amendment violation. The Justice Department weighed in, saying the justices might complicate the enforcement of laws and regulations. The department did not take sides in the case. In court filings, U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Prologar acknowledged the final paragraph of Olo's letter might have gone too far. However, Prologar wrote that even if state officials went too far, in discouraging insurers and banks from doing business with the NRA, the case should be decided narrowly to avoid disrupting other regulators. Ephraim McDowell, assistant to the Solicitor General, told the High Court that they should consider all of Volvo's messaging, not just the letter. More soberly, Justice Neil Gorsuch said, It seems like we're all in agreement that the law here is clearly established under Bantam Books and it's just a matter of application. Is that right? Bantam Books is a 60-year-old case that sets a benchmark for prohibiting government officials from coercing people to stifle their free speech. Justices asked Cole how the NRA would like to resolve the case. Cole said the existing test for how far regulators can go would be fine. Kavanaugh said to laughter, that's about all I need. Deanna? Thank you, Pat. All right, front page of Nation and World Extra. Netanyahu to send officials to Washington. Israel's expected Rafah operation is on the table as divide between the allies grows. This is from uh, several authors from Associated Press. Dateline Washington. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Monday agreed to send a team of Israeli officials to Washington to discuss with Biden administration officials a prospective Rafa operation as each side is looking to make clear to the other to clear to the other its perspective, while White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said. The agreement to hold talks about Rafa came as Biden and Netanyahu spoke on Monday, their first interaction in more than a month, as the divide has grown between allies over the food crisis in Gaza and Israel's conduct during the war, according to the White House. Sullivan said the talks will happen in the coming days and are expected to involve military, intelligence, and humanitarian experts. 
The White House has been skeptical of Netanyahu's plan to carry out an operation in the southern city of Rafah, where about 1.5 million displaced Palestinians are sheltering, as Israel looks to eliminate Hamas following Hamas's deadly October 7th attack. Sullivan said Biden, in the call once again, urged Netanyahu not to carry out a Rafah operation. At the coming talks, he said the U.S. officials will lay out an alternative approach that would target key Hamas elements in Rafah and secure the Egypt-Gaza border without a major ground invasion. The president has rejected, and did, did again today, the straw man that raising questions about Rafah is the same as raising questions about defeating Hamas, Sullivan said. That's just nonsense. Our position is that Hamas should not be allowed a safe haven in Rafah or anywhere else, but a major ground operation there would be a mistake. It would lead to more innocent civilian deaths, worsen the already dire humanitarian crisis, deepen the anarchy in Gaza, and further isolate Israel internationally. The call comes after Republicans in Washington and Israeli officials were quick to express outrage after Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer sharply criticized Netanyahu's handling of the war in Gaza and called for Israel to hold new elections. They accused the Democratic leader of breaking the unwritten rule against interfering in a close ally's electoral politics. Biden hasn't endorsed Schumer's call for election, but said he thought he gave a good speech that reflected the concerns of many Americans. Netanyahu raised concerns about the calls by Schumer for new elections, Sullivan said. Biden administration officials have warned that they would not support an operation in Rafah without the Israelis uh, presenting a credible plan to ensure the safety of innocent Palestinian civilians. Israel has yet to present such a plan, according to White House officials. Netanyahu, in a statement after the call, made no direct mention of the tension. Netanyahu said, We discussed the latest developments in the war, including Israel's commitment to achieving all of the war's goals, eliminating Hamas, freeing all of our hostages, and ensuring that Gaza never again constitutes a threat to Israel, while providing the necessary humanitarian aid that will assist in achieving those goals, Netanyahu said. The Biden-Netanyahu call also came as a new report warned that famine is imminent in northern Gaza, where 70% of the remaining population is experiencing catastrophic hunger, and that a further escalation of the war could push around half of Gaza's population to the brink of starvation. The report came from the Integrated Food Security Phase Classification, a partnership of more than a dozen governments, UN aid and other agencies that determines the severity of food crises. Netanyahu lashed out against the American criticism on Sunday, describing calls for a new election as wholly inappropriate. Netanyahu told Fox News Channel that Israel never would have called for a new U.S. election after the September 11, 2001 attacks, and he denounced Schumer's comments as inappropriate. We're not a banana republic, he said. The people of Israel will choose when they will have elections and who they'll elect, and it's not something that will be foisted on us. Even as they express frustration about aspects of the Israeli operations, the White House acknowledges that Israel has made significant progress in degrading Hamas, and Sullivan revealed on Monday that an Israeli operation last week killed Hamas's third-in-command, 
Marwan Issa. Sullivan said, The president told the prime minister again today that we share the goal of defeating Hamas, but we just believe you need a coherent and sustainable strategy to make that happen. Biden, after his State of the Union address earlier this month, was caught on a hot mic telling Democratic ally that he was told Netanyahu that they would have come to Jesus meeting over the growing humanitarian crisis in Gaza. His frustration with Netanyahu's prosecution of the war was also on display in a recent MSNBC interview in which he asserted Netanyahu was hurting Israel. He has a right to defend Israel, a right to continue to pursue Hamas, Biden said of Netanyahu on the MSNBC interview, but he must, he must, he must pay more attention to the innocent lives being lost as a consequence of the action taken. He's hurting, in my view, he's hurting Israel more than helping Israel. The president announced during his State of the Union address that the U.S. military would help establish a temporary pier aimed at boasting the amount of aid getting into the territory. The U.S. military has been airdropping aid into Gaza. The Biden administration resorted to the unusual workarounds after months of appealing to Israel, a top recipient of military aid, to step up access and protection for trucks bearing humanitarian goods for Gaza. The five-month war was triggered after Hamas-led militants stormed into southern Israel in a surprise attack, rampaging through communities, killing some 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and taking around 250 hostages. Israel responded with one of the deadliest and most destructive military campaigns in recent history. The war has killed over 31,000 Palestinians, according to Gaza's health ministry. Around 80% of Gaza's population of 2.3 million have fled from their homes, and a quarter of the population faces starvation. Pat, back to you. Thank you, Dan. And continue with Nation and World Extra on page 5. Negotiators race to finish funding bills. Homeland Security clash has slowed the process. This is a story from, uh, written by Kevin Freaking of the Associated Press. Negotiators from Congress and the White House scrambled Monday to complete work on the remaining government funding bills for the fiscal year and avoid a partial shutdown for key departments that would begin this weekend without legislative action. Six months into the fiscal year, Congress is about halfway home in passing spending measures expected to total about $1.65 trillion. Lawmakers passed the first portion of spending bills in early March, funding about 30% of the government. Now lawmakers have focused on the larger package and in what has become routine are brushing up against the deadline when federal funding expires. Agreement has been reached on five of the six spending bills that make up the second package, but negotiators have clashed over the measure that provides funding for the Department of Homeland Security, which is responsible for securing and managing U.S. borders, among other things. A senior Republican aide not authorized to speak publicly said progress is being made in the negotiations. The stakes for both sides are immense as border security emerges as a central issue in the 2024 campaigns and the flow of migrants crossing the southern border far outpaces the capacity of the U.S. immigration system to deal with it. Negotiators had been moving toward a simple solution, passing a continuing resolution that would mostly extend funding for the Department of Homeland Security 
though with some increase from 2023 spending levels. But the Republican aide said House Republicans pushed for more resources for the border than the continuing resolution would have provided. The White House also eventually rejected the continuing resolution approach, but didn't make that clear in communications with congressional allies until the 11th hour, the aide said, increasing the risk of a short-term shutdown. White House Press, Sec- White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre on Monday declined to speak to timelines during the negotiations, but emphasized that funding the government is lawmakers' responsibility. It's their job to keep the government open, she said. Drilling down more specifically on funding for the Department of Homeland Security, she said the Biden administration has maximized their operations and removed more people in the past 10 months than during any year since fiscal year 2013. She said it was important to continue the operational pace. Obviously, we believe DHS needs additional funding. We've always said that, Jean-Pierre said. Even with the possible release of legislative text early this week, it's unclear whether Congress can avoid a brief partial shutdown. House rules call for giving lawmakers 72 hours to review a bill before voting, teeing up a vote for Thursday at the earliest. House Speaker Mike Johnson will then likely have to bring the bill up through a streamlined process requiring two-thirds support to pass. Most of the no votes are expected to come from Republicans who have been critical of the overall spending levels, as well as the lack of policy mandates sought by some conservatives, such as restricting abortion access, eliminating diversity and inclusion programs within federal agencies, and banning gender-affirming care. Then the Senate would act on the bill, but require all senators to agree on spending or speeding up the process to get to a final vote before midnight Friday deadline. Such agreements generally require Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to allow for votes on various amendments to the bill in return for an expedited final vote. The package being finalized this week is expected to provide about $886 billion for the Pentagon. The bill will also fund the Departments of Homeland Security, Health and Human Services, Labor, and others. Overall, the two spending packages provide about a 3% boost for defense while keeping non-defense spending roughly flat with the year before. That's in keeping with an agreement that former Speaker Kevin McCarthy worked out with the White House, which restricted spending for two years and suspended the debt ceiling into January 2025 so the federal government could continue paying its bills. House Republicans have been determined to end the practice of packaging all 12 annual spending bills into one massive bill called an omnibus. They managed this time to break the spending bills into two parts. And Deanne, I think we have time for one more story before the break. Thank you, Pat. On page 7 of Nation World Extra, the In Brief uh, articles, pro-Trump Michigan attorney is arrested after a hearing in D.C., An attorney facing criminal charges for illegally accessing Michigan voting machines after the 2020 election was arrested Monday after a hearing in a separate case in federal court in Washington, D.C. Stephanie Lambert was arrested by U.S. Marshals after a hearing over possible sanctions against her for disseminating confidential emails from Dominion Voting Systems, the target of conspiracy theories over former President Donald Trump's 2020 election loss. Lambert obtained the Dominion emails by representing Patrick Byrne, a prominent funder of election conspiracy theorists, who is being sued by Dominion for defamation. 
In a statement, the marshal's office said Lambert was arrested on local charges. A Michigan judge earlier this month issued a bench warrant for Lambert after she missed a hearing in her case in which she's charged with four felonies for accessing voting machines in a search for evidence of a conspiracy theory against Trump. Lambert had earlier, unsuccessfully, sued to overturn Trump's loss in Michigan. Earlier Monday, Lambert had acknowledged passing on the records from Dominion Voting Systems to law enforcement. She then attached an affidavit that included some of the leaked emails and was signed by Dar Leaf, a county sheriff in northern Michigan, who has investigated false claims of widespread election fraud from the 22 election, to a filing in her own case in Michigan. The rest of the documents were posted to an account under Leaf's name on X, the social platform formerly known as Twitter. And the UN resolution is sought that would ban nuclear weapons in space. The United Nations, United States, and Japan are sponsoring a UN Security Council resolution calling on all nations not to deploy or develop nuclear weapons in space, the U.S. ambassador announced Monday. The announcement that the U.S. and Japan had circulated a resolution follows what uh, White House confirmation last month. I think I need to. I think I need to end there, Pat. <laughs> Very good, Deanna. Uh, for the last 90 minutes, your readers have been Pat Steele and Deanna Snyder. It's been our pleasure to read for you. And now we will take a short break to allow our next readers, Dale and Doug, to get into place.
Welcome back. Your new readers are Dale Finnegan and Doug Kretzinger. We'll continue with articles from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. And now here's Doug with our next article. Thank you, Dale. Speaking of USA Today, here's the first opinion. It's a long one, but uh, it's, it's called Can the Athletes Cash In on March Madness? Written by Alex Taylor, T-A-L-E-L. He's an opinion contributor and is an attorney and author. He served as law clerk to Judge John O. Newman of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit and to Judge Sidney H. Stein of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York. So that's the person who wrote this. I hope there's not a whole lot of sports words in here. I might run into trouble. Here we go. With employees nationwide getting ready to partake in their annual March Madness office pools, College athletes have never been closer to recognition as valued employees themselves. In February, a National Labor Relations Board regional director ordered a union election for the Dartmouth College men's basketball team, finding that the players are entitled to unionize as school employees under the National Labor Relations Act. The decision is just one part of a rapidly evolving legal landscape that seems increasingly receptive to the idea that college athletes should be fairly compensated for the profits they produce for their schools, or for the produce they produce for their schools. Product, profits they produce for their schools. I was right first time. The board's decision aligns with the Supreme Court's 2021 ruling in NCAA versus Alston, which signaled clearly that colleges and universities are not exempt from antitrust laws when it comes to profiting from student-athletes without fairly compensating them. Antitrust laws exist to ensure fair competition in a free market economy. Top college athletes should be allowed to operate competitively in the open marketplace. In fact, many Division I athletes drive sports programs that generate outrageously large profits for their schools. The Ohio State University Athletic Program, for example, raked in more than $250 million in revenue in just the fiscal year 2022. But should college athletes be compensated as employees when they already receive non-employee-based compensation? Challenges to NCAA rules for student-athletes. The Dartmouth NLRB decision found that, quote, the players play basketball in exchange for compensation, end quote, but also that, quote, does not provide the players with monetary compensation, end quote. How then are the players compensated? Athletic scholarships could be construed as compensation, but Ivy League schools don't offer them. Instead, the board found that the players were offered something arguably more valuable than an athletic scholarship, an early read of their applications or access to a special administration process, special admission process, to gain entry into a highly selective college, in addition to unconditional financial aid, athletic apparel, and other amenities. But the Supreme Court's unanimous decision in the Alston case in 2021 suggests that college athletes are entitled to more than just non-cash compensation. And or at oral argument, Justice Elena Kagan chastised the NCAA for appropriate, uh, appropriating the athlete's amateur status as a basis to deny them compensation and, in a fiery concurring opinion, 
Justice Brett Kavanaugh invited broader challenges to the NCAA student-athlete compensation rules. Just weeks later, the force of the Alston ruling greased the skids for a combination of state law and NCAA regulation changes, through which college athletes acquired the ability to lawfully monetize their names, images, and likenesses, NIL. By accepting money from businesses in exchange for allowing them to use a personal likeness or image in advertisements, Division I athletes can now earn hundreds of thousands of dollars upon enrollment, often with the assistance of school-affiliated NIL collectives, which exist to source such opportunities for the students. Top Division I earners can reap millions, with USC freshman basketball player Bronny James, son of LeBron James, worth an estimated $5.9 million. Shouldn't a formal wage-based compensation scheme be offset by the value of the scholarships college athletes receive in addition to any NIL earnings? The potential for these earnings, in addition to scholarship money and related benefits, is surely more than sufficient compensation for college water pool players or fencers, for example, particularly because the vast majority of them complete the degrees they were promised when recruited. But the calculus is often different for athletes propping up massive revenue-generating institutions such as football or basketball. The vast majority of those student-athletes never turn professional. Far from it, many of them are used up and cast aside without ever completing their degrees, as Justice Samuel Alito pointed out at an oral argument in the Alston case. Consequently, their earning potential is often never greater than it's, it is during their time spent as part of powerhouse college athletic programs. The subtext of Alston is that those student-athletes should be permitted to capitalize on that potential. And those athletes now have Dartmouth's basketball team to thank for furthering their case to be valued as employees. The Dartmouth players voted March 5 to join the Service Employees International Union Local 560, now the first labor union for college athletes. The irony? According to the college, Dartmouth basketball operates at a loss. The Dartmouth NLRB decision moving college athletes ever closer to formal recognition as employees is all the more important as the NCAA seeks to enforce rules that limit earning power of names, images, and likenesses. Most recently, the Attorneys General of Tennessee and Virginia sued in federal court to prevent the NCAA from enforcing those rules which prohibit student-athletes from negotiating NIL deals during the recruitment process. The presiding judge has already ruled in favor of the athletes, finding that the states are likely to succeed on the merits of their claims because the NCAA's prohibition violates federal antitrust law and harms student-athletes. The NIL litigation comes just as the Third Circuit Court of Appeals considers whether college athletes are employees under the Fair Labor Standards Act, which sets minimum wage and overtime pay requirements. In that case, Johnson versus NCAA, a group of Division I athletes, sued on the theory that they should be paid as employees under the FLSA for their time engaged in athletic activities on behalf of their schools. A ruling for the athletes would allow the case to move forward toward trial in the federal district court. The net effect of the Dartmouth NLRB decision 
would be to bring athletes one step closer to unprecedented bargaining and earning power over colleges and universities that have, in many cases, enjoyed outsized institutional growth as a direct result of those athletes' revenue-generating efforts. College athletes deserve to be compensated appropriately for their efforts, commensurate with the economic benefits their hard work confers upon their schools. Of course, there remains the question of how any formal compensation scheme should be structured. As far as the law is concerned, the process of answering that question is well underway, and rightly so. The second opinion from the USA Today is titled, Congress Wants to Banish TikTok and Meta Should Be Next. This opinion is written by Sarah Pequeño. Congress can't agree on anything. They can't agree on gun violence, health care, economics, or foreign policy. They can barely avoid a government shutdown. Apparently, the only thing they can agree on is banning TikTok. On Wednesday, the House representatives passed bipartisan legislation that could practically ban the video platform in the United States after years of hand-wringing over the app's ties to China. Unlike Meta, X, which was formerly Twitter, and similar social media companies, TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, is headquartered in Beijing. Also unlike Meta and X, TikTok is predominantly populated by young people. Both of the other social media platforms pose risks to national security, but they are based in the United States. And, maybe more important, these legislators love Facebook and Instagram. They run campaigns using Twitter. They know how all of these U.S.-based apps work because they have become part of our daily lives over two decades. These representatives may ask Mark Zuckerberg to attend congressional hearings about the dangers of social media, but they wouldn't dare consider abandoning Meta. It doesn't matter that Facebook sold user data that ultimately led to a disinformation campaign that landed Donald Trump in the White House. And it doesn't matter that Instagram is just as psychologically damaging for young people. I understand the theory behind banning TikTok. If there were a large-scale data breach or the possibility of spyware, it would be impossible to punish the people behind the company in court. Unfortunately, the threat of legal action has not made U.S.-based social media sites safer. It would behoove Congress to focus on actual issues, like the people dying because of the money we have invested in foreign military operations or the loss of women's body autonomy. Instead, they want to pick apart an app that they don't know how to use and don't want to learn more about. And again, that opinion was from Sarah Pequeño. It's now time for the sports page. I'm going to just go ahead and let you know what's on TV before I turn it over to Doug for maybe an article from the sports section. College basketball is all we're hearing about these days, and there are some games that might be of interest. The men's tournaments are starting up. The NCAA tournament has a couple of first four games that are going to be uh, played tonight on True TV. Wagner versus Howard is a first four game in Dayton 
at 5.40 p.m. for men's college basketball, the NCAA tournament, first four game. And then the other one is at 8.10 p.m. on True TV, and that game will be Colorado State at Virginia. We have some local interest possibly in some NIT tournament games, and those are going to be on ESPN channels at 6 p.m. tonight on ESPN2 in the NIT tournament. Cornell is playing Ohio State. And at 8 p.m., also on ESPN, not ESPN2, in the NIT tournament, Kansas State is at Iowa. That's a first-round NIT game. And on ESPNU in the NIT tournament, Minnesota will be at Butler. So there are some basketball games you might want to catch up on. There are a couple of baseball spring training games. At noon on MLBN is Tampa Bay versus Boston. At 3 p.m. on the MLBN is Cincinnati versus the L.A. Angels. Doug? And here's an article written by Tommy Birch from the Des Moines Register Sports section. It's he- it headlines, Finley to face X-Aid in NCAA Tournament. Dateline is Ames. Immediately after learning the Iowa State women's basketball team would be playing in Maryland in the first round of the NCAA tournament, Cyclones coach Bill Finley grabbed his phone and texted Terrapins coach Brenda Freeze, F-R-E-S-E. I can't say it out loud, Finley said with a smile at the text's contents. Hmm. Iowa State to 7th seed will face 10th seed Maryland in the first round of the NCAA tournament. The matchup will have a special meaning for the two programs. Freeze, a Cedar Rapids native, is a former assistant of Fenley's at Iowa State. Her sister Stacy played for him as well. Fenley said, the committee has a sense of humor. Well, it certainly appears that way given the connection between the two coaches. Freeze was an assistant coach for Finley from 1995 to 1999. She left Ames for her first head coaching job at Ball State and then Minnesota. She's carved out a Hall of Fame resume at Maryland. The 53-year-old won a national championship with Maryland in 2006 and took the team to three Final Fours, including back-to-back appearances in 2014 and 2015. The Terrapins are coming off a trip to their seventh Elite Eight appearance under Freeze and are in the midst of another great campaign. After winning 19 games this season, Freeze, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, F-R-E-S-E, has them back to the NCAA tournament for the 20th time during her tenure. It's no shock to Fenley, who has watched the Iowan lead the program into becoming a perennial powerhouse. While Fenley conceded he hasn't seen any of her teams this season, he already knows what to expect. Brenda's teams are always the same, skilled, tough, and they're going to be a tough out every time, Fenley said. The matchup puts Free's daughter in a predicament, a sister in a predicament. Stacy Freeze was one of the most decorated players in Iowa State history as a two-time All-American and three-time first-team All-Big 12 pick. She led the Cyclones to three straight NCAA tournaments, including an Elite Eight in the 1999 and Sweet 16 in 2000. Phenomenal family, Fenley said. He went on. We'll see what kind of jersey Stacy has on for the game, but at the end of the game, I'll be happy that one of us won. 
Fenley loses his voice and provides a unique message. When Iowa State players Hannah Bellinger and Addie Brown wrapped up their press conference with reporters on Sunday night, Fenley walked through the back of the media from pulling a whiteboard. Fenley had lost his voice and didn't plan to speak to media members, so he wrote a message on the board apologizing to reporters for not being able to answer questions and encouraged them to text or email. But after seeing the group of reporters who had come to Hilton Coliseum to cover Iowa State's selection Sunday reveal, Sunday reveal, Fenley decided to quietly answer questions. Quote, Everybody is happy that I can't talk, Fenley said. I don't get to say anything at home, so I'm used to this, end quote. Fenley said he experienced similar situations when he began treatment for an invasive cancerous lesion on his vocal cords back in 2011. He said losing his voice won't impact his coaching. Quote, my doctor was texting me at the end of the season like, we better be careful. I ignored her, but we've got time. End quote. Uh, when the 2023-24 season began, expectations weren't high for Iowa State. Cyclones had lost the bulk of their talent from a season ago and were planning to rely on five freshmen and two transfers in what was going to be a rebuilding war. But Iowa State shocked many pro prognosticators as they tallied 20 victories, reached the 12 Big 12 tournament title game, and earned an at-large bid to the NCAA tournament. The latest achievement is certainly not what many expected for the Cyclones this season, except them. I think it's honestly just fueled our fire, being the underdog the whole year, Brown said. Even after all the success, including wins over two top ten foes, Brown believes there still may be people who question how good the young Cyclones are. It keeps us going day in and day out just knowing that people are still sleeping on us. Are still sleeping on us, Brown said. It's not about proving people wrong. It's more about proving us right. We came into knowing it. We can be this team and we can do big things. We're just proving ourselves right. One more to read here before I send it back. Saw it here just a moment ago. I, uh, I wanted to read this. Let me see. Drake women to open NCAA tournament against Colorado. Also, Tommy Birch wrote this. The Drake women's basketball team rolled through the Missouri Valley Conference regular season, suffering only one loss on the way to another conference crown. After surviving a close call in the finals of the MVC tournament, the Bulldogs assured themselves of another trip to the NCAA tournament. Hours after locking up an all-important automatic bid to the NCAA tournament by winning the MVC tournament, the Bulldogs learned their fate. They'll be 12-seed playing 5-seed Colorado in Manhattan, Kansas, in the first round of the NCAA tournament. The Bulldogs and Buffaloes will meet at 6 p.m. Friday, ESPN News. It's the second straight trip to the Bulldogs, who earned an at-large bid under Coach Allison Pullman last season. While the team's late-season success was a bit of surprise last season, this season's success was expected. The Bulldogs were able to build off the momentum of that 2023 trip to the NCAA tournament with a dominating campaign season. Drake went 29-5 during the season, compiled a 19-1 mark in MVC play, and wrapped up at least a share of the conference crown with two games remaining. 
The 19 victories are the most by any MVC men's or women's hoops team in a season. Drake then stormed into the league tournament and continued its success by beating Indiana State in the quarterfinals and holding off in-state rival Northern Iowa in the semifinals. The Bulldogs secured their spot in the NCAA tournament thanks to a layup by Anna Miller as the time expired to beat Missouri State in the championship game. That victory was the 14th straight for Drake, which boasted an impressive resume, even outside of MVC play. Taking down another in-state rival, Iowa State, earlier in the non-conference portion of the season. It is that time of year. Before I get to Dear Abby, I'm going to read you the uh, 50 States uh, article about Iowa because it's also about Drake. Uh, the 50 States program uh, article says, A new program set to launch at Drake University in the fall will allow students to gain a nursing degree in just one year. The program is designed to get nurses into the workforce quicker as demand for health care workers grows. And now for Dear Abby, the headline of the column today, Freeloading Boyfriend Makes Woman Feel Like a Bad Person. Two letters. The first one says, Dear Abby, I've been with the same guy for almost five years. I was madly in love with him the first three years, but after I had my daughter, things slowly changed. We haven't been intimate in a while. I had some female issues I wanted to take care of, plus I'm not physically attracted to him anymore. He makes little comments about it to make me feel bad. He doesn't want to discuss anything, so talking to him is impossible. We broke up a few months ago but got back together. He moved all his stuff out, so now he makes me feel guilty, telling me he has nothing and our house doesn't feel like his anymore. By the way, he doesn't pay for rent or household expenses like groceries, etc. I pay for everything because he doesn't work. Yet I have to give him money for his gambling addiction. I don't want to be with him anymore. But the last time we broke up, he was terribly verbally abusive, and I don't want to go through that again. What should I do? Signed, Indecisive in Illinois. Abby says, Dear Indecisive, Tell him you no longer want to be his sugar mama. He will have to find someone else to feed him and finance his gambling addiction. You do not, or excuse me, do not do it while the two of you are alone. Make sure to have several friends or relatives with you for moral support and to help him collect whatever things he has at your place. If you do, it may curb his verbal abuse. After that, change the locks on your doors and do not admit him to the house again. If he forces his way in, summon the police. If you don't rid yourself of him, he will suck you dry. The second letter says, Dear Abby, My in-laws live 90 minutes away, so when they visit, they usually stay with us for a night or two. I don't mind hosting them. They are delightful people, and we always have a good time. However, now that they're getting older, I'm wondering what the etiquette is for sleeping arrangements. We don't have a guest bedroom, so they sleep on a pull-out sofa with a pillow topper. While they've never mentioned it, I know it's not all that comfy, and I know they have some age-related aches and pains. When my grandparents stayed with us when I was a kid, they usually slept in my sister's double bed, and she slept on the floor in the room I shared with my other sister. 
Would offering my in-laws my son's double bed be a good idea going forward? I'm fortunate to have great in-laws and would like to do right by them. It's just a night or two after all. What would you recommend I do? Signed, Comfort Creature in New Jersey. Abby says, Dear Comfort Creature, Ask your in-laws whether they would be more comfortable if you changed their sleeping arrangements. If they say yes, have a chat with your son, explain the problem, and tell him you want him to sleep on the pull-out sofa bed when his grandparents are visiting. Makes sense. Here's a little weather recap before we close our um, reading today. The high is expected to be 61 in Des Moines, so enjoy the nice weather today. The low tonight will be back down to 27. There should be plenty of sun with breezy and warm weather. Winds from 12 to 25 miles per hour with increasing cloudiness tonight. The um, sunrise today was at 7.19 a.m. Sunset will be at 7.26 p.m. And the normal high is 50 degrees, so we're actually above normal for our, our high today. And the normal low is 31, so we're going to get cold tonight. That's a little weather recap for you. But that brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today, Tuesday, March 19th, 2024. I'm Dale Finnegan, and my partner at the microphone has been Doug Kretzinger. Earlier, you heard... Pat Steele, and Deanna Snyder. You can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smart device at any time at the website iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings come from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.